Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zivi. I'm the host, Zivi Owens. I am an author. My latest is blank, pub date March 1st, a novel. I'm also a podcaster, obviously, a publisher, a bookstore owner, and so much more. If you love books, you're in the right place. In fact, we call it the Zivyverse, or really, the LA Times called it the Zivyverse, and we're going with it. Go to ZivyOwens.com to learn more, and follow me on Instagram at ZivyOwens. Jordan Salama is the author of Stranger in the Desert, A Family Story. Jordan is a writer covering culture and environment in the Americas. His essays and stories have appeared in National Geographic, New York Magazine, The New York Times, and other publications. An American writer of Argentine, Syrian, and Iraqi Jewish descent, he is the author of Every Day the River Changes, a Kirkus Review's best book of 2021, and the 2022 Princeton pre-read, and, which by the way, he was on my podcast for that, and now Stranger in the Desert, a family story. He graduated from Princeton University in 2019 and has been based in recent years between New York and Buenos Aires. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for coming back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This time to discuss Stranger in the Desert, a family story. Congrats. Thank you so much for having me back. This is great. It's my pleasure. I love this story. So personal. Your exploration set off by the family and what was it called? His story, Antigua. What was it called? The book in the in the basement? The, the, the Historia Antigua, the ancient history. You can tell I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> right. That you found in your grandfather's basement. Tell listeners 
about the book and about the journey that you went on as a result of your discovery. Yeah. So when I was in college, one day at Thanksgiving, I went down to my grandparents' basement in Peekskill, New York to look for some ice cream uh, that my grandmother asked me to get out of the freezer. And next to the freezer, there's my grandfather's kind of like desk workspace uh, and a lot of books and, and old things that he has there. And I caught sight of this binder and it was like about this thick and kind of filled with yellowing papers and photos falling out the sides. And it was just labeled in Spanish, Historia Antigua, El Cuento, La Familia. So the ancient history, the story, the family. And I was like, what is this? And so I opened it up and I found 500 years of wandering history of my family's Sephardic Jewish past from Spain to Syria to Argentina and beyond. My family's a big mix of things. My mom was born in Baghdad. My dad's family are Syrian Jews who ended up in Argentina. So there's always been kind of like a big mix of languages and stories thrown around in my in my, in my my family. But this was different. This was like an oral history that for the first time my grandfather had written down over the course of his life and he never told us about it. So... <laughs> I started reading it in secret, and then after a few weeks, he found out that I was reading it, and he started reading it with me. Our conversations drifted increasingly into Spanish, which had never happened before. Abuelo and I, like a lot of, I think, families in the U.S. that come from other places, spoke largely in English. He would sometimes speak to me in Spanish, but I would always respond in English. So anyway, in that binder, there was a mystery. He said that his father, my great-grandfather, was a traveling salesman on a horse in the Andes Mountains. He moved from Damascus to Argentina, and he went and he sold his goods so that maybe, just maybe, he had these long-lost descendants that were still in the mountains of Argentina. And I'm a journalist. I'm a storyteller. <laughs> you know me now. I travel down rivers in Colombia and <laughs> across America, and I love a good adventure, so I knew that this one had to do with my family. I had to hit the road. So this book is the story of my search across Argentina looking for the long-lost family members and traces of my great-grandparents and my grandparents and myself in a country that previously I, I wasn't able to call home, but now I kind of am. Oh, only kind of, though? No, well, I mean, I guess <laughs> I, I was born and raised in the United States, so I'll always consider myself as American. But my connection to Argentina before this was only really through like soccer and a little bit of mm -hmm. Spanish. I mean, we won the World Cup, like all these things, my whole life, like very, very feeling very proudly Argentinian, but not really knowing what that meant. Going on this trip and looking for this family, what I actually found were traces of us and why we are the way that we are because of these spaces that my family passed through in the past. And that's what I want readers to take away here, that we have all of these stories that mean something to us, even if the place names and the exact details of our families can't be found. You know, there's so much that can be revealed about ourselves when we take that look into our family's past. So true. This is this is like the perfect instruction manual for what to do when you find like a buried treasure and you have maps and emails and conversations you had with so many people. You know, one of the things I was struck by is you say pretty matter-of-factly early on that your great-grandfather was horribly abusive, right? And he didn't even like the school teachers to you know, enact any sort of discipline physically on on his kids because like that was his role and all of that. And and that was just, even though he was very protective of them, this was like the way he did it and, you know, full stop. Tell me about how you felt learning all of that or did you know that all along and how did you handle the writing of it and the presentation and all of that? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know it all along. I actually didn't even know my great-grandfather's name before I found this book. Like this is right. the, the I shouldn't level. have. I'm sorry. Yeah. I shouldn't no, have no, asked no. that. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so, so I, so I definitely didn't know it all along, but it was something I learned very quickly. And it was, you know, partially a lot. I think a big part of it was just because that was like the time and what people did at that time, like, uh, you know, 
corporal punishmenting your kids and things like that. So it wasn't just him. But what I think was more revelatory about him was that in addition to all of that, he was a big embellisher. He was a big exaggerator. He was a big storyteller. And that meant that he was actually kind of a big liar in a lot of situations. There's this anecdote that I love where he would sit on the corner in Buenos Aires and read the newspaper to all of his Arabic-speaking companions because they were from Syria. But he was one of the only ones who could kind of read well in Spanish at the time. So he would read the newspaper and he loved the attention of people hearing him read those stories out loud so much that when he finished, he would make stories up <laughs> and everybody would believe him. And so here, a lot of times, right, I would be thinking like, here I am so far away from home looking for something based on one of these like fairy tale goose chases by this, you know, spinning liar of, of, of stories and tales who might not even be the best example to want to follow in the first place. And I definitely grapple with that in the book. Like, what does that mean? And why are we doing that? But the truth is, it was just a door. It was just a portal. I think a lot lately about portals and and what these like initial curiosities can spark. And at the end of the day, this is not a book about Salim Salama, my great-grandfather. This is a book about a family that has an identity that's so complex, and it tries to at least a little bit better understand or analyze why some of the people in our family do the things that they do because of those complex identities. I mean, we are, and a lot of these identities are identities in conflict, especially now. We we are Arabic-speaking Jews. We're Latin Americans. We're Americans. Like We are this giant mix of things that so many people say have to be separated, but we feel mm -hmm. like we're all of them in one. And... And it's a character study in all these different people, these different characters of our family and how they they dealt with that over the course of centuries. Yeah, you do a beautiful job discussing the migration and the wandering nature of Jews in history and how you call them suitcase ready, which is an apt description. There were a couple times that you talked about how your own relationship to Judaism. Can I read this passage? Is this again? Sure. To read? Yeah, um, you said, Judaism is like this. We are a people who constantly question and adapt, and only ever are we able to move forward if we modify our traditions and laws and customs in a way that is reasonable, livable for us wherever we are. For my family, and indeed for many families I know, these kinds of modifications are as old as time. And we skip down and you say, I do not consider myself religious, yet I maintain certain customs that are undoubtedly rooted in faith, especially when it comes to food, which, by the way, I do all of these as well. And then earlier, you talked about how, as if being Jewish were not a complicated enough existence, being an Arab Jew feels even more complex, because along with the traumatic memories associated with being expelled from the Arab world for being Jewish, there also came widespread experiences of palpable prejudice and discrimination within the larger Jewish world for being Arab too, especially as the Arab-Israeli violence has deepened divisions and made personal tensions more painful and pronounced. So talk a little bit about all of that. Wow, that's that's a lot to unpack yeah, in one part. So, so I'll start, I'll start with, the, with the first part about being Jewish. Yes. This is a book about, I mean, this is a book about being Jewish. This is a book about the different evocations of Judaism in a family that has moved through different spaces every couple of generations for a very, very long time in history. And so what does that mean? I mean, for me, I think that being Jewish is, it's so much more than a religious identity. It's an ethno-religious identity. It's a, it's, it's, it's an 
it's a cultural expression. I mean, for me, being Jewish is drinking mate, which is like the traditional Argentinian tea. Being Jewish is speaking Arabic. I mean, I don't speak fluent Arabic, but I use words in Arabic in my English and in my Spanish. And that to me is being Jewish. Being Jewish to me is, I don't know, doing henna parties for weddings and having belly dancers at bar mitzvahs and all of the things that are like age old traditions of my Iraqi and Syrian Jewish families that to me, it's like so interwoven and not separate, separable at all. At the same time, I've seen so much of those kind of ethnic expressions of Judaism go away in my 26 years of life. Um, my mom's family from Baghdad came to the U.S. And when I was little growing up, like I have these vivid memories of all these people sitting around the table, sitting around in, in like a living room at a party, jabbering away in, in Judeo-Baghdadi Arabic, this like now rare Jewish language that if you asked me today, I could probably count on less than five fingers the number of people who I hold close who are still alive to speak that language. And with the death of a language like that, obviously comes the death of tradition, the death of culture. So all this comes back to, okay, why do we do these things? It's because our ancestors tried so hard to maintain these things. They put their lives on the line or they escaped or whatever it was because they wanted to keep these things going. So in honor of them, that's why I think so many of us do these things because it's it's kind of like a way of 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 holding on to these complexities that the world wants us to let go of. There's another line in the book where it says, for we are Arab Jews and the job of Arab Jews is trying to remember all the world wants us to forget. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true because we're fading away. I say we, I was born in the United States. Like I'm an American Jew, but I hold all of that history and that weight behind me. And I want to carry it forward for my kids and my grandkids, because I think it's just such a beautiful thing to to have. And it, it opens up so many stories and so many histories. And talk a little bit about the the role of Arab Jews, not the role, the identity of that within the context, even in America and even right now, and especially in light of everything that's going on, having sort of straddling so many different cultures in a way to create who you are. What does that I feel got, like? Yeah. I mean, I think that the path like, I've, I mean, I'm no expert on any of these things, but I think that the path to peace kind of runs through our shared histories and our shared identities. And the more we ignore the fact that there's so much that we have in common, so much so that there's people like me and my family who literally feel like we have both identities in one being, mm-hmm. that we can start to claw back our way through all of the terrible violence and and division and conflict over the last more than 75 years, 100 years. I think that that it's really important to say that there are Jews who listen to Um Kalsum and there are Arabs who light the Hanukkiah. That's why I use the term Arab Jews in the first mm-hmm. place. It's controversial mm-hmm. sometimes in communities. I mean, you'll find even people in my own family who will, while frying kibbe and listening to this old Iraqi music, they'll say, we're not Arabs because it's a way of saying we are not like them. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's also people maybe in those countries who used to be around lots of Jews who might also kind of reject those those notions that there is something that's called Arab Jews. But to me, it's such an irreducible fusion. And I think that the more that we try to tell our story and the more that we say, you know, this is a sign that there was this coexistence for a long time that maybe there's a way of of starting what I think could be very meaningful conversations about how to live together again. Interesting. I love that. Talk a little bit about 
your travel journalism in general. This book is another example of how well you do it. You include small details and yet bigger contextual histories. You talk about, you know, a cup of coffee or not coffee, it was like a, a meeting or a, a call to a woman whose husband has passed away and how sad that moment is. And then you paint a, a much wider context. Like talk about how you create scenes and how to create a whole narrative, which is both moments and history. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I, I, I mean, you know this about me. I love journeys. And I think the journeys have an amazing power to connect disparate people and cultures and, and, and identities. And for me, when I'm undertaking this kind of project, the context and all of that stuff that kind of surrounds those detailed scenes really is there to make sense of it for myself and also mm -hmm. to make sense for my readers because I don't want to have a scene out of context. And I also want to make sure that I'm well-read and well-educated about the place where I'm going before I get there so that I can have the most meaningful and respectful and sensitive encounters possible. It's a lot easier in this case because I was writing about a place that I have an actual connection to and that my family has a lot of history in. Whereas my first book, which you'll remember, was about a river in Colombia. I'm not Colombian and I'd never been to that river before. So that's a lot harder. There are different challenges. But I think that far too often we talk, I mean, I talk a lot about my work in terms of like travel writing for a new generation, because I think that far too often you'll get the travel part without the journalism and the history and the context part, or you'll get the kind of hard news slash history and context part without those vignettes of everyday life and the experiences of normal people. And I'm all about talking to, to ordinary people and hearing, hearing about their experiences, because I think that that's the best way to understand each other. Love it. For people who maybe didn't listen to our first podcast, shame on them. They can go back and listen to it. But can you give a quick summary? You're so young. You started writing at Princeton. Give a little background on you. 
Yeah. All right. Well, so I, yeah, I started writing uh, in this way when I was in college. I graduated from college in 2019. I'm 26. And I tell stories about the world. I think that that's the best way to describe what I do, mostly focusing on the Americas because I speak English and I speak Spanish and I work a lot in both languages. I write about culture and history and identity and the environment and the kind of intersection between those subjects. Uh, my work appears in National Geographic and the New York Times, most recently in New on the cover of New York Magazine, a story about migration and children and families selling candy in the New York City subway system. And yeah, I think all of my stories connect the cultures and continents that make me who I am. And I think that it's especially evident those origins in this book, Stranger in the Desert. But yeah, I'm a nonfiction writer and I'm still going and I'm going to try to keep going at this for as long as I can, as long as I'm reading. <laughs> and what is your next project? You know, I don't have a next book yet that, that I that I know that I want to write. I think that it's going to take some time to do more stories and, and essays and kind of focus on that for a while. I'm super interested in, in migration and the intersection between migration and climate. Those are definitely topics that I want to explore. But right now, the big project on the docket is that Stranger in the Desert comes out <laughs> February 20th, and I'm going to be spending weeks and weeks and weeks taking it to as many communities and libraries and bookstores and schools as possible. So I will, I'm open to any invitation to come. <laughs> uh, what are you most excited about on, on your tour? Which part of the country? I'm excited to have these kinds of conversations. I think the thing about Every Day the River Changes that was so special, I guess this was after we spoke, but then I took it to all these different places. Yeah. And it's a book about a corner of Latin America that is so revelatory. And and I think Latin America is kind of a continent. People in, in the United States, or as a region, I'm sorry, people in the United States have these preconceived notions about that region. And they maybe have one-dimensional ideas of what it, what it is. And all of my work tries to push back on those stereotypes and those preconceived notions. So bringing every day the river changes to places in Pennsylvania and Idaho and Zoom calls all around the United States and having these super meaningful conversations with people for whom Latin America is not as ever-present in their minds as for somebody like me was really cool. I want to do the same thing with Stranger in the Desert, but I especially think that there's a world in which I could bring it to my generation and even younger, kids mm -hmm. in high school, kids in college, to say, you're lucky enough to have your grandparents still around. Here's the kind of adventures and the ways that these stories, that these living histories can change your life. Don't wait until you're, you know, 30s and in your 40s and all you have left are documents. Now you have the chance to interview people and here's how. And I hope that this book can be kind of a guidebook of sorts about it for how, you know, young people, especially Jewish young people in this case, I think a lot of Jewish families have similar libraries to the library in the book that my grandfather had, special as I think it might be in my case. I want people to be able to kind of grab that and hold on to it and let it change their lives the way it changed mine. That's beautiful. Yeah, I don't know if everybody else's grandfather would detail any sort of romantic escapades. <laughs> you never know. You'd be surprised. I've, talking the very little that I've spoken about this book so far, it seems like almost everybody has a similar, a similar kind of project when they get older. Really? I don't know. I don't, I'm going to have to ask. I mean, my grandparents have passed away sadly, but I don't know. Maybe I need to know more about my parents. Yeah. Before, I mean, your you parents know? too, right? It doesn't have to be your grandparents. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely surprising to me. Wow. And what books have inspired you lately that have come out late, you know, travel or any kinds of stories, things that are keep you, keeping you up at night or things like that? I'm reading a book now called Kantika by Elizabeth Graver. And it's a kind of, I just, I'm just starting it now. And it's a Sephardic 
journey, a novel, actually. It's very similar to my family, but it's in fiction form. And I'm really enjoying it. There's these one-liners and these details in there that are just so evocative and so special. And I actually am lucky enough to be doing an event with her on March 28th at the Jewish Museum. We're going to be in conversation together. So that's super, super exciting. And I'm loving her book. Do you think it's more important than ever to have Jewish stories out there, Jewish characters, all of that? I mean, how do, this is a crazy time for books to be coming out. It's a crazy time. And I can't, I wouldn't be, I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't nervous to see what it would be like to market a Jewish book in, you know, in, in the coming months. But I think that where I'm going to kind of hold tight and hold firm is that I have this really unique story and this unique background that is not just a Jewish, I mean, it is a fully Jewish background, but it involves so much else. Again, it involves, you know, being Middle Eastern, being, you know, an Arabic speaking family, which I think is rare, again, to have that kind of so tightly interwoven with being a Jewish family. And also it involves being a Latin American family, which talked about migration between the U.S. and Latin America. So there's two hot Mm -hmm. button issues that this book kind of tackles head on. I I do think that it's important to tell these stories, though, because if we stop telling them, these stories will be forgotten and they will be lost. And the real threat is that kind of loss and assimilation and that forgetting. That Mm -hmm. fear of forgetting is what drives so much of my family storytelling. And, and, you know, my biggest fear is that it's going to be me who forgets. So I want to make sure that that's not, that's not the case. You said in the book that you even went through a time in college where you were writing down everything you read and every song that you were playing and everything. Yeah. Do, you, do you look back on those lists often? I mean, I feel like all of us are trying so hard just to, whether it's through photography or writing or whatever, just to, to try to capture and like pin to the bullets and board of life some of these fleeting moments and like how do we do it best is it what we're consuming that reminds us of what we were feeling is it journaling like how do we how do we capture it yeah i don't have the right answer i wonder what it is for you actually i do you have a way of doing that <laughs> honestly sometimes i feel like instagram is my diary i know and and actually i was like i should just download all of this because even times like covid and like i'm like what happened i remember but what was it like in the day-to-day? Because I was writing about it every single day. So I don't know. It's Well, right. For some people, maybe it's Instagram. For other people, maybe it's writing down songs. And for other people, maybe it's, I mean, I have a relative, like one of my grandmother's older brothers painted his memories mm-hmm. of his childhood. And he got better and better as he went along. He's, he's He became really talented when he was older. But he painted, like, there's people who keep these kind of old collections. There's people who collect, like, stones. There's people who yep. collect records. It could take so many different forms. And that's one of the questions I have for so many people is how does your family preserve these or how do you preserve these memories? Because for my family, it might be the books behind me, but for, or my notebooks, but for, for somebody else, it could be something totally different. I look back on my lists, of course, like they're the most, my notebooks and my lists are the most important thing that I have. And I hold them so close. Before my grandmother passed away, I started doing like video interviews with her. And then on the anniversary of her death, some years I'll like play them back for my cousins and I'm so like to have the footage it doesn't take that long during the day right just to take a minute out and do a quick video with somebody you love and yet it doesn't always occur to us to do that until it's too late I feel like if this conversation sparks some takeaways it's the search for family history and the need to get down the details while you can Yeah. It's so great that you did that. 
And I think that it takes, like you said, it does take very little time. You'd be amazed at how much you can get out of an hour of, of sitting down and recording somebody and asking them questions. And one of the things that I'm going to start to do in these talks, and I'm actually leading a class about this starting tomorrow, a four-week class about like how to rediscover and reimagine your family history like a journalist. Mm. You know, what are the ways to ask questions that are open-ended and not closed? Like, how do you prevent the yes or no answers? Because there's a lot of people who might just be like, yes, mm-hmm. like, I lived in in spain and that's it and like no more no more information but there's a part of the little do you like the little prince i love the little prince it's been a minute but yes <laughs> one of my favorite books and there's a part of the little prince where he says something like when i meet a friend like so many people when you meet a new friend so many people will ask like how old is he or where is what's the name of the town that he's from but what i want to know is what's his favorite color and what does he think about when he's walking down the street and what flowers make him smile and obviously it's a different situation but like what I want to know when I'm asking these questions of older people in my family is not necessarily what exact day and year were you born, because sometimes that that is like not even known mm-hmm. fully. You'll never be able to get the right answer. What I want to know is what was it like for you when you went to school? What was it like for you when you got home from school? What did your pa- what did your family cook for you when you when you came home? Like what did you eat? What were those sounds and smells and sights? The same scenes that drive my travel writing for a new generation. Like you just have to look. It's a different kind of journey. It's just a journey back into your own past, and that to me is is so exciting because to hear Abuelo, my grandfather, and and Abuela too. Like she then also came forward with her secret book collection, which is in in the in the book too, which was amazing. Like you get all these amazing anecdotes. Yep. Fabulous. Well, what advice do you have for aspiring authors or even people trying to capture their family story that you're going to teach in this fabulous class? Or, well, people trying to capture your family stories is definitely to write everything down, to record everything, because you don't know when the time will come where you're not going to be able to get those that kind of information again when you're doing the, the family history. Family history thing also, I'm going to talk a lot about social media and the power of Facebook groups. Hmm. With, Groups are amazing underutilized tool for people looking into these history projects because maybe they might not be able to tell you about your own ancestors, but they will. There are these groups that will be able to tell, give you rich descriptions of places and neighborhoods like you've never heard before. Mm-hmm. And that to me is really cool. But for aspiring writers and aspiring authors, I don't know. I feel like I'm still in the same boat as when we talked last time, Zibi. <laughs> You're not, though. You have another book already. I don't know. I still feel like I'm trying to figure all this out. But I, I think I'll say, I, I go, now I talk with a lot of students and what I always say is just to show your writing to everybody. As many people, I think people are so kind of guarded with like, oh, I, this is not ready yet. Like, it's not perfect. I can't show it. But I think you should show it to as many people as possible and talk about what you're working on and be excited about it because one person will come along who'll be able to help you bring it into the world. And that's what happened to me. And that's what I hope will could happen to others too. Well, one thing that I think you do well that I... I love when I see authors doing this, and it doesn't happen that often. It's thinking of themselves and what they write about as a brand and what that brand stands for. And like when you're like, I write about this, this, and this, you know, it's like, okay. So the next book that comes out, like I basically know what I'm going to get. It could be fiction, doesn't matter, but it's going to be around these sort of general topics. And I feel like that's good. So people, it like reinforces what they, what they get. And that's what people want the most, right? They, they ha- they have allegiance to brands when they have consistency in them. So I think that that's a really great thing to have honed early. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm still trying to hone it and to figure it out because 
I think that in the past, when a lot of the writers I really admire were kind of coming up, those brands were the publications. Mm, and mm-hmm. now it's a lot harder because it's the really sad state of kind of the the journalism world is that there's just not like these, a lot of these places are struggling. And a lot of us writers who are independent are forced to kind of forge our own paths while still working really closely with these publications. But no longer is it that you can be a staff writer in many places mm-hmm. at all. So it's less now that you could say like, I write for this and then everybody knows what you write. And now it's, I think more, I do this kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. If you want to read everything I write, you're going to come away with a kind of warmer, more meaningful sense of how the world works and why we are the way that we are and why we should respect the place where we live and the people who live in it. And I think that that's kind of what I do. I love that. Like what kind of storytelling do you do? I mean, it's a good thing for every author to ask themselves because there's usually something. I mean, I think of Danny Shapiro, who's like, actually, I've always been writing about the search for my identity. And now that she realized her dad wasn't her dad, it all like made sense. She's like, but every single thing was like an inquiry into that in one way or another. And you don't always know why. Like she got a very clear cut answer, but yeah. I mean, this is a, a clear cut answer too. This is, you're a, you're a citizen of the world, you know? And it's, anyway. It's a start. It's a start. <laughs> I think like, well, no, I think like all, like all these projects, like I, I write it actually at the beginning, the book starts with a letter to my grandfather and it says, yes. well, like this book, here's the book, but it's not finished. And I don't think it ever will be because mm-hmm. these projects never are. Yeah. These are the identity projects and even these story, like the storytelling brand project, like that's a lifetime's work. And, and I'm just at the beginning of it. Like, I just feel like I'm scratching the surface. So I'm excited to see what's coming next. Me too. Well, good luck with launch and very excited for you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Learn more at byheart.com.